0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's the show and podcast where readers meet writers. Earlier this summer, I attended and wrote about a national conference of librarians in Chicago. Illinois had just outlawed book banning, and the librarians were in a jubilant and feisty mood. Judy Bloom, whose books were challenged almost from the beginning, gave a rousing speech that brought the audience to its feet. But the librarians were also aware that one state's ban on banned books was not going to end the rising culture of censorship. Last week was Banned Books Week, a week in which the American Library Association declares, let freedom read. So I'm interviewing three authors whose books have been challenged or banned. We're starting with Kelly Yang. Her debut novel, Front Desk, has been challenged and banned. She told American Libraries magazine... The people who are trying to ban books are, quote, trying to ban what the future looks like. The people who get to be in it, the lives they get to lead. Kelly Yang, welcome to the show. It's good to talk to you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It sounds like you believe these parents and organizations who are challenging books are pretty uncomfortable with the changing demography of America. Is that what it comes down to?
1: I think that's part of it. I think that you know, the books that they're trying to ban are books that they think are not what their lives look like. You know, they are books about um, people of color. they are books about immigrants. they are books about LGBTQIA. So I think a lot of times um, they're worried about whether or not their kids should be reading about, quote unquote, people who are, you know, different from them. But my understanding is that we are a nation of all people, you know, that we go to school with different kids so that we are prepared in the future to be able to get along with everybody and work together and build a really great future together. Um, so for me, I think that it's really foolish to try to ban books because you're really trying to ban a part of the future that your kid then is less equipped to, to access and to deal with.
0: I want to talk to you about a couple of ideas here um, about kind of different dimensions of censorship, one of which is soft censorship, where mm-hmm. librarians or teachers are concerned enough about what the reaction may be if they bring in your book or someone else's where, that has you know created some political buzz. And so they just decide – they don't want to confront the hassle. Do you think that happens? And, and what do you think that means in these districts where those books just simply don't end up on shelves?
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, everybody has a hard enough time, right? It, it's I can totally understand and sympathize with so many teachers and librarians. We've had COVID, we've had a very difficult few years. Um, so the idea that, you know, that people are going to make their lives and their jobs even harder is just, it's heartbreaking to me. Um, And I can understand why some people, I mean, I think a lot of us in that situation might feel really scared. Right. um, Scared to deal with a lot of parents who, you know, are, some people are very vocal. Um, They are the minority. That's the thing that we have to remember is that the overwhelming majority of parents want their kids to read and want their kids to access the library. I think there was a study um, even in Florida where they asked Florida parents, you know, if you could just revoke access to the library for your kids, how many people would sign up for that? And a very, very, very tiny percentage decided to wanted to sign up for that. So the overwhelming majority of parents have no problem with kids reading um, about different people. I mean, that is the whole point of of going to school, right, and, and, and reading in general. Uh, but I think that the very vocal, tiny minority, they do scare people. And I think that a lot of times, um, it's easy to cave a little bit or to, to maybe make certain decisions and, and second guess. Um, but I, I do applaud a lot of the teachers and librarians who are not doing that, who are saying, you know what? I chose to become a teacher or a librarian for a reason, which is I want the kids to have access to a bright future and to be able to think freely and to think critically, you know, and not to just be like sheep.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I was pretty inspired at the at the ALA conference where librarians were exchanging tips and tactics and getting a lot of encouragement from each other. Did you hear that too?
1: Absolutely. And I think that's the thing. There's community um, in speaking out and saying, you know, and finding each other. And you'd be amazed at how many people um, are really inspired by that. A lot of times parents have no idea what's going on. So it might be just one very vocal parent and the rest of the class, meanwhile, has no idea what's going on. But this is about, you know. Our our right to have kids read and for my right as a parent to not have another parent dictate what my kid gets to do.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was reading something that Judy Bloom, who as noted, you know, is a veteran of the challenge and book banning uh wars. Absolutely. But I was also reading something that Lori Hulse Anderson, whose books have also been challenged, Uh, was writing about when it comes to this idea that if parents think their kids are not hearing about these ideas somewhere else, that if they believe the book is the source of exposure to this idea, they're really deluding themselves. And here's something that Anderson um, told the New York Times on this. By attacking these books, by attacking the authors, by attacking the subject matter, what they're doing is removing the possibility for conversation. That really struck me because that denies the parent then an opportunity for discussion about whatever that issue is that the that the child will hear somewhere else, if not in a book. I, I'd love your thoughts on that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, listen, I have a high schooler, a middle schooler and an elementary schooler. okay. And every day, you know, so I have the whole spectrum and every day we talk about all of these issues. We we talk about, um, you know, different experiences. We talk about Black Lives Matter, you know, why it happened. We talk about LGBT, you know, we talk about representation. I want them to be able to come to me with their questions because guess what? If I just close that conversation down, the conversation doesn't just go away. It happens somewhere else, usually on the internet with a bunch of strangers on social media. I mean, you don't think these kids, these kids have access to so much. And the idea that we're going to take away books and that's going to somehow (laughs) change their entire world is ludicrous. You know, all it's doing is taking away an opportunity for both of us to have a thoughtful discussion based on a story that we've both read, which is a conversation starter. And we can have our own conversation about it.
0: You're the author of uh, Front Desk, which has been challenged and banned. How widely? What, what, describe what happened when the book published.
1: Well, the book came out and was a book that I didn't expect was going to resonate with so many people. Um, It's about an immigrant girl, Chinese American girl who runs a motel with her parents. It's based on my childhood, you know, my childhood experience. It Mm. really happened to me. (laughs) My parents and I ran like three motels, and I never really expected the story to take off. In part because growing up, I didn't have a book like this. So I was always deeply ashamed that we had this weird job and everybody else had some sort of normal, oh you know, like I thought they all lived in these beautiful mansions with like a golden retriever and that I had this crazy, strange situation checking in like a million people a day. Um, And, in fact, when the book came out, I got hundreds and hundreds of letters from people saying, oh, my gosh, you know, my parents ran a laundromat or my <laughs> grandmother, you know, did this. And a lot of people resonated with the immigrant story, you know, learning English and going to school and feeling a little bit like a fish out of water. So there were so many parts of the story that were just so powerful to people because for the first time they saw themselves reflected. So for the first couple of years, I mean, the book just took off, you know, it was a That's huge great. sensation. <laughs> That's so yeah. Great. And I mean, at one point, it was called I think, uh, book riot said it was one of the, you know, 30 most influential children's books of all time. Wow. So it was really just um, kind of out of nowhere, that we started hearing, okay, well, now it's getting challenged. Um, some people were we're questioning whether we needed to learn about the immigrant experience. You know, why should my child, you know, have to learn about that? I mean, there are some incidences of racism in the story because, you know, it's a, an Asian American family living through the 90s. Like it's things were hard. Things were tough. And there were things that happened to her school. She encountered some bullying And I think a lot of some people thought, well, I don't really want my kid to, you know, learn about that because now they're going to feel, you know, sad or, or uncomfortable. But the reality is, if we just completely airbrush our entire nation, right? And our entire nation's history, and we just completely ignore experiences of millions of people, you know, then To be honest, what is the difference between this country and where my parents came from, which is China? I mean, they gave up so much to come to this country. My mom was an engineer. My dad was a doctor. One of the reasons they did that was so that I have the freedom to read and the freedom to think and the freedom to question and reflect. These are really core values that make this country so great. And if we take them away, we are completely taking apart the fabric of this nation. Do your parents know
0: what happened with the challenges and the bands?
1: Yeah. And I remember, and I remember um, you know, because growing up in China, this is like totally normal for uh-huh. something to be uh-huh. to be banned. So they didn't really think too much about it. But when they when I started talking about the experience and really speaking out against it, they were like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, just because it's challenged doesn't mean that I lose my right to challenge back. Right. And I <laughs> should be able to do that. And I and then I think they were so inspired. They have been so inspired Um, And so like, just enthralled watching that it's, it's been a riot to watch.
0: (laughs) That's great to hear. Um, You were part of a panel that uh, I attended at at the ALA conference, and you spoke about how important the sanctuary of the library had been in your life. And I wondered if you'd reflect a bit on that. I, I wanted our listeners to hear that.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the library is one of the few places where people aren't judged. You know, you don't have to have a lot of money to walk in there. It's not like going to the mall. You know, it's not like even going to the grocery store. I mean, if you linger around the grocery store for too long, <laughs> you're going to start <laughs> asking questions. Um, so the library is a place where everyone's welcomed, everyone is safe, everyone has the right to learn. And that access to books is one of the one of the only ways we can have that social mobility, truly have it in a, you know, sort of equitable way, right? Everything else really requires so much money. Um, And so the library is so important for us to protect. If you really want to give people the hope to improve their lives um, and that they can do it without having, you know, all this access to wealth or whatever. And so it's really, it's really heartbreaking when libraries are being attacked Um, when librarians are being, you know, asked to move books, um, which happened recently in Hamilton. And it's really, really hard then because then we're taking, we're starting to chip away at this um, important community sanctuary that, that just does so much for our nation.
0: Is there, I mean, for me,
1: even like, that was one of the reasons why I, um, my parents did not know any English, you know, I went to the library. Every summer I went to the library, like every day. My my classmates, they all went on vacations. I never got to go on vacation. I was working, so I had the only place I could go was the library. Um, but I, I'm a firm believer that if you go to the library, you can change your life. I mean, I'm an example of that.
0: <laughs> I love to hear that. Is there a banned book, other than your own, Um that you would recommend on Banned Books Week?
1: I mean, absolutely. I am a huge fan of, like you mentioned, Lori Halse Anderson. I think her books Speak and Shout are so important, especially if you're a young woman, Um, young adult growing up in our, you know, our times, these are hard times. And I think that it's really important for girls to know, you know, what is consent? um, Why we have to have it? It's why we should have respect, Uh, people should respect us and our bodies and our, you know, thoughts and humanity. Um, I think these are really important for women to learn and at a young age. So I would highly recommend um, speak and shout.
0: Kelly Yang, her debut novel, Front Desk, has been challenged and banned and is a bestseller. Kelly, thank you. Thanks very much. Loved hearing you reflect on this.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show and podcast where readers meet writers. Last week was banned Books Week, and I'm talking with three writers whose books have been subject to bans. Now to writer Matt De La Pena. He's a Newberry Award-winning author whose novels have been challenged a number of times. His novel Mexican White Boy was banned from the Tucson, Arizona curriculum 10 years ago. Matt, welcome back to the show. It's good to talk to you again.
2: Good to speak to you again, Carrie.
0: I, I've read some of what you said when you learned that the uh, Mexican White Boy had been banned in Tucson, And you made the point that the ban would really deny the novel from the very kids who you wrote it for and you felt needed to read it. Tell me a little bit, add some context to that, if you will.
2: Yeah, so when you're a new writer, you sometimes glorify the idea of being banned. You're like, oh, one day I want to get banned. That would be so interesting. But then you're you don't have the context for who is unable to have access to your book. And Mexican white boy, this is a a very interesting experience for me because I wrote the book because I'm mixed. My dad's Mexican, my mom is white. And I wanted to write about the feeling of sometimes not feeling Mexican enough growing up. So the book gets goes out into the world, it has a life of its own. And then I start to hear that it got caught up in a political upheaval in Arizona at the time where, you know, certain people in charge said, I think some of these books are anti-Republican. And so my book was part of that. And, you know, I, I was coincidentally invited to Tucson High School to speak around that same time. Wow. And I thought there was no way they would have me there if my book is not even, you know, can't even access it there. But, you know, I think it was just a political thing, much less than it was actually about the content of the book. So I ended up going there and meeting all these young Mexican American readers who actually had the book taken out of their hand by people from the superintendent's office during class, put into boxes. Wow. And taken to the basement. And, you know, it was amazing because I stood in front of them and I'm speaking about my own experience, which echoes some of their experiences. And it's just, Uh, it was such a strange experience because all everybody in that room felt so connected. Uh, and it was over a book, you know? So I think one of the things I've realized as an author is that your book gets end up, it, it ends up getting used as a tool in so many ways you had never expected. Sometimes it's great. And sometimes it's situations like this where a book could be banned you know what I've wondered,
0: as I've read about how these book banning movements, you know, take root in different communities, I wonder how many of the people that get caught up in the demands for banning really know the content of the book, have read I mean, librarians are question this all the time. Have they read the book? What do you think?
2: And I think that's the biggest problem with the bannings is there is no context for the bannings. It's you, It's a rumor. Oh, I heard that there's a scene like such and such. Or I heard that this book leans in to racial identity too much. Or in my case, I I honestly believe the title was kind of explosive in some conversations, Mexican White Boy. And I don't think people knew what to do with that. In fact, uh, what I had heard is that people viewed the book as anti-white which is fascinating to me because the character's half white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. and that's even in the title but I think they misread the title and thought okay well this is, you know, it would fit into that critical race theory stuff that's happening.
0: I mean what's what's interesting about what happened with you is this sense that there is something dangerous about exploring what is, what, what is kind of an identity question, right? Yeah. Who am I in which community and where do I feel like I fit? I don't understand what's dangerous about
2: that. Have you, I'm sure you've given some thought to this. What do you come up with? I think that that is the key question. You know, I, I think when you set out to write a novel, you think about the specific case. In my, in my uh, book's You know, in in the case of my novel, Mexican White Boy, it's about one character who's grappling with what it means to be mixed. Mm -hmm. You know, my dad is Mexican, my mom is white. Who am I? There's nobody I can ask. That is a specific case of one character. You know, I always say a writer should never diagnose his or her characters. They should simply list the symptoms, and that's what you try to do when you take on one character. But I think people who are trying to take books out of the curriculum or out of the the school, they're thinking that this is a stand-in for all people, right? Or, Or this is kind of attacking an entire ideology instead of just one character exploring their own identity. I want to make sure I understand
0: what you mean by a writer should never diagnose the character, just list the
2: symptoms.
0: Tell me more.
2: Okay, so in the case of Mexican white boy, since we're talking about that, um, the character is trying to figure out what it means to live up to who, we want, who is, he thinks his dad wants him to be. In fact, he thinks his dad is gone because in the book he's he's not there, he's not present. He thinks his dad is gone because maybe he's not Mexican enough and his dad is thinking... Well, if you're not Mexican enough, I don't want any part of your life. Mm-hmm. so he's trying to explore that, but I'm not going to list all the cultural you know things that go along with that. I'm not talking about Mexicans in general. I'm talking about one character, so I think that's what I mean like in another book I wrote, um a character shows tendencies to do things over and over and over again until something in the process fits right now. The reader can diagnose that as, oh, I think this is an OCD tendency. But Mm -hmm. in the book, I will never say that because Mm -hmm. it's not my job to diagnose the character. It's just to show you what he does. Mm -hmm.
0: The director of the National Coalition Against Censorship uh, said something interesting to the New York Times, and I was curious about what you thought. It's this confluence of tensions that have always existed over what's the proper
2: thing to teach kids.
0: Do you see these book challenges like that?
2: Well, I do. I do. I think, you know, obviously book banning has nothing to do with young people. It has everything to do with parents, right? And and I understand this instinct. I'm a parent of two young kids, and I'm very cognizant of what comes into their brains, right? But I think where we run into trouble is when parents are trying to you know eliminate that content for other people's children Mm -hmm. you know it's okay to make that decision in your home that makes sense i mean this is your your world you're raising your children the way you think is best but when you start interfering with what other parents can do with their children that's where we run into trouble and there's this idea that i've always thought is important for me as somebody who writes for young people I think adults, we start to like solidify an ideology, a way of thinking, and we often choose books that reinforce what we already believe. Hmm. I think sometimes adults read to think, oh, that's the way I feel too, and now I kind of feel even more reinforced about that. But young people are still figuring out their worldview, and that's what I love about writing for young people, and to me it seems like a travesty to not allow young people to have certain or to access to certain information Mm -hmm. so that they can make a conscious choice of what they want to believe in.
0: I love the idea of that, too. You're also reminding me of an interview I did. This is probably, I don't know, six or seven years ago now with Judy Bloom, who was at the American Library Association uh, conference this summer talking about this. But she said in that interview that if – Parents really believe that taking a book out of the hands of their children means that their kids will never hear about it, never think about it right, aren't talking to their friends about it. They are really living in some kind of delusion. Kids will find out and kids will try to figure out what they think. And a book can be
2: the best way to that. I think that's perfectly said. First of all, Judy Bloom total legend. We all look (laughs) up to her. (laughs) But, But you know, what you just said is it makes so much sense to me. Okay, so if I'm a parent who's worried about a concept or a book that maybe hits race in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable, well, is there any better way to confront that idea than to read it with your child? Or, you know, even we see picture books now, um being taken off shelves i know that's that's scary like is there a safer place to be introduced to new ideas than in the lap of a loved one or in a classroom full of other learners so i think i think it's a misguided idea to try to avoid a piece of information that might come through a book i think the best thing you could do is read it and have a conversation about it with your child or with your class i think at the end of the day, books are just vehicles to conversation. A hmm. couple more questions about this. Ha- are your, Have you seen books uh,
0: in the hands of your kids that have, I don't know, made you feel a little
2: queasy? And then you've put into practice what you've just described. It's so interesting you say that because what makes me queasy sometimes is – overly didactic books. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. A book that's, it's like, here's the lesson (laughs) and I'm going to start up front with that. So those, I got to be honest, those books kind of make me queasy, but I'm not going to avoid reading them. Um, Like my son sometimes likes books that I don't think are the best written books or, (laughs) or the, you know, the idea isn't approached in the most literary way, but also, what do I know? You know what I mean? So if he (laughs) likes the book, we're going to read it again and again. And one of my favorite things, one of my favorite experiences as a parent is watching my son who used to, he used to despise books. He used to, yes, I know this is offensive territory, so, (laughs) so forgive me, but he would knock the book out of my hand and okay, some kids do that, then he would climb onto the ground and push the book under the couch so I couldn't get to it. <laughs> oh my gosh. But watching but watching him go from that to then being engaged in a book, even if I didn't think it was the strongest book and want me to read it again and again and again, there's no way I was going to not do that. And then, you know, sometimes we'd have a conversation uh, after reading the book. But I love that. I love that it was a tool where we got to share something. Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm also interested in what effect you think the the book bands have had on what your own writing career and maybe the access that kids get to the books. I mean, as, as you said at the beginning here, I thought, hey, it'd be really cool to have a banned book because a lot flows from that. So yeah. what's been the actual experience with it?
2: Well, I think that instinct – For the early, the young writer that I might have been where you think, Oh, you know, what would it be like to be banned? I think it's coming from the right place in, in that I don't want to write a book that's easily dismissed. I want to write a book that makes you consider something that's uncomfortable at times or, or is a new idea. Um, and by the way, as a reader, I love that. I love when I confront a book that takes me to an uncomfortable place for a minute and I have to sit with that. That's a dream as a reader. So it's not that when I look back, the instinct was, was right. Even though the idea of being banned, being cool is that was wrong, but the instinct to write something that made a mark, that's interesting. That's, that's a good instinct. Now, you know, I think what I'm noticing is that, you know, some, the, my favorite books, like, let's take The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. which is often challenged. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a girl, Picola, the main character, who who's who's dealing with colorism, and she's being told that she's unattractive. And then all of a sudden, she starts wishing for blue eyes, which, obviously, we know what that's code for. Mm-hmm. She's thinking about what it would be to be the dominant culture. And what Toni Morrison does there that's so smart is she just shows you this character. And then you, as the reader, feel so uncomfortable about that desire to have blue eyes for this young black girl. So to me, that's great literature. Books where I'm starting to see their. The the political intention is at the forefront. Those are the books I get a little bit worried about, although I'll read them, obviously, as we've talked about. Um, But it's like, okay, now the point of this story is the ideology instead of the character.
0: Writer Matt De La Pena, his uh, novels for young readers include Mexican White Boy. What's the newest novel you have out, Matt, or the one that's coming?
2: Okay. Well, I have a, a middle, my very first middle grade is coming. Um, don't have a title yet, but it should be out next year. And then, you know, I've been writing more and more picture books because I have young kids and I have a brand new one coming out called The Perfect Place.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. It's good to talk to you again. And, uh, and I hope it's not so long before we do this again. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a
2: big fan of you. So thanks so much <laughs> for having me. Again. Right
0: back at you, my friend. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. The American Library Association observed Banned Books Week last week with a theme of Let Freedom Read. So I'm in conversation with three writers whose books have been banned, and I'm turning to Samira Ahmed. She's the author, among other books, of Internment, a novel about a young Muslim American woman who is forced into an internment camp in a futuristic America but she is also the author of the forthcoming book, This Book Won't Burn, about book banning. Samira joins us from Chicago. Welcome. It's good to have you on the show.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Carrie.
0: All right. I'm super excited about your forthcoming book, so I'm going to start there. You said it's inspired by some of the experience that you've had with book challenges or what you've seen in these movements around the country. Tell me a bit about it.
3: Sure, absolutely. I think my first, my earliest experiences with personal book banning was right even when my very first book came out, Love, Hate, and Other Filters. And I experienced what I call soft banning, which is I heard from a number of librarians about how they were hesitant or not willing to put it on their shelves because they were from communities where there were no Muslim students and they thought their library director would object to having money be spent on a book such as mine. Um, and uh, over the last several years, I've heard many, many stories like that um, with my books, with internment in particular, um, and also Love, Hate, and Other Filters. But um, in, internment, I heard this incredible story from a teacher in Kansas. She was actually trying to bring it into her classroom. She put the purchase order in. Um, for those who aren't in schools, teachers don't go out and buy all the books for everyone. They put in a purchase order, right. and a staff member you know, submits that. And this staff member refused to submit the purchase order for my book. Wow. Now, mind you, this is a staff member. It is not the school board. It is not the principal. Um, It's not an educator. It's not a librarian. And this teacher who said to me, very frankly, honestly, I was kind of scared of getting fired. I am the primary breadwinner in my family, and I didn't know how much to push back. And. Mm. Um, she said, so I gently kind of pushed and was asking, am I going to get this book? When am I going to get this book? And finally she asked the staff member directly, why, why won't you just put this purchase order in? And the staff member said to her, well, I guess I am just prejudiced.
0: Okay. Okay. I
3: mean, I, I was astonished that this person would say it, but I guess they were finally pressed enough to say it after a year of trying to push to just get the purchase order in she was finally able to get my book in the classroom. But do you see what I mean by yeah. soft banning? It's oh, people yeah. who, you might not read about this in the newspaper, it's not getting to even to a school board meeting. right? And yet this is happening, I think, not just to my books, but to books um, by you know queer authors and um, authors of color so that there's this kind of soft banning, this kind of almost pre-banning where people are not allowing the books to come into schools based on their, as a staff member said, prejudice.
0: This brings up something I wanted to talk to you about, which is the insidiousness of censorship in any form is when the targets of it begin to censor themselves. And your your Kansas librarian really had a moment of, like you said, I'm the breadwinner, what are the consequences going to be? if I push for this. And we wouldn't, I think we would never hear about all the examples of people saying, I just don't want the hassle or the fight. But it's got to be going on out there, right?
3: Oh, I think it's very, very widespread. I mean, I am just hearing anecdotally, because a lot of teachers um, and librarians DM me Mm. or pull me aside at conferences. And I was a former teacher. So I think, you know, I feel a sense of camaraderie and and fellowship with them and an absolute understanding of why they're nervous. But You know, the way I look at it is your silence is essentially helping the oppressor, which is something we've seen throughout history. And it definitely takes courage to speak up and it's hard to speak up, but we can do brave things. We can do hard things and it's easier to do them in community when we can band together with people um, around us. And I, I want everyone to understand this the voices of those who want to challenge books and censor books and ban books, their voices are very loud, but I assure you they are a minority. So please find around you, your community, your fellow librarians, your parents who are willing to advocate to ensure that our children have freedom to read. And you know, who's doing a great job of this. And this is what partially inspired my next book. Mm -hmm. This book won't burn is students.
0: Yeah, that's right. And,
3: I talk to so many students. I have the great fortune of being able to travel and go to schools, although my school visits have been greatly uh, reduced. I think teachers are afraid to bring me in. Um, and I've seen students who are creating, you know, banned book clubs and who are going to their school board meetings and who are getting fellow students to, you know, write petitions and to picket and to, uh, do sit-ins and all kinds of civil disobedience. And I think that's so brilliant. I'm just a huge fan of young people, which is why I write for teens. And I think this is a great example where we can see the courage that our young people are exhibiting who are, they're being forced to to find their courage because adults around them are making terrible decisions. Mm. And I'd I love for, you know, Uh, the teachers out there, librarians, parents, adults in the community to be inspired by these kids, to be, to work together with them um, to fight these book bans. Now, I I live in Illinois where we are, you know, we're the first state to have an anti-book ban law. Right, right on. Yes. To prevent book bans. Yeah. And, um, it's possible. This happened because of political will. It happened because um, of who we voted into office. And, it's really something that has to it has to come with a you know, real groundswell. It's a grassroots movement that can push our politicians to make the right decision. And just FYI, school board members are politicians and you should absolutely be calling them, be emailing them, show up your school board meetings and letting your voice be heard.
0: You know, when I was at that that Library Association meeting in Chicago, it was just – I think you probably know this – about a week after Illinois passed the ban on banning books. And you – I mean the stories that some of the librarians came in with, came to that conference with, the – What you've said about how important the community is makes a lot of sense, because you hear librarians come in from, let's say, smaller, maybe rural districts who feel pretty isolated. And when somebody in the community gathers a small group to challenge a book, it can often just be the librarian against an ever-growing, louder demand to remove the book. So... I saw a lot of, we're with you, here are the resources, here's what to do. And I hope there's some librarians out there listening to this and knowing that there's a community out there. But one of the things that Matt De La Pena said is, you have to remember that when the people are demanding that the book be removed, they are not, I mean, they are doing this not just for their child, but for everyone's child. And I think some of the people that get caught up in the politics of this forget that. Can you say something about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I used to be a former high school teacher, and uh, so I, I understand very well that some parents might object to their child reading a book. You as a parent have obviously... The ability to make decisions for your child in your home however you as a parent do not have the right to make a decision for every single child mm. you are not the parent of my child you are not the parent of all these other children and frankly um these parents who are making these these decisions to challenge books to to to, to ban books to refer to queer authors as pedophiles to refer to us i've been called many many names which i don't want to um repeat here on public radio because I'd be beeped um, and they are operating out of hate and fear. And what I want us to do, those of us who believe that censorship is one of the most anti-democratic things that you can t- can try to push through is mm-hmm. I want us to operate from a place of of not just freedom and liberty but from love, from understanding, that all children deserve to see themselves as a hero on the page, that our shelves should reflect our world. Because as an author, one thing I know is that even if my book doesn't sell a million copies, even if it doesn't go viral on TikTok, (laughs) and I just am so saddened that queer kids and children of color are having that opportunity stripped away from them because of the hatred of adults. I
2: mean,
0: one of the things that Kelly Yang says about this is it's just deep denial of how America is changing. Do you think that's what the what is at the bottom of what seems like resurgent censorship?
3: Oh, sure. I think that's definitely a piece of it. I mean, and it's not just that America is changing. It's that in many ways it's already changed. I mean, right now our, our K-12 through population um, in public schools um, is already or on the cusp of being a minority majority, so I, I think there is sort of this last gasp of people who want America to be what it "quote unquote" was, which is um, you know, as Langston Hughes says, America was never America for me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an it wasn't the America that I believe, and so many other so many others believe we should have, which is an inclusive America, which is a nation that looks at all of its people and sees its incredible strength in our diversity, in our ability to, yes, have discussions and have debates and have different opinions, but fascism and oppression aren't opinions. Racism isn't an opinion. Homophobia isn't an opinion. Those are just plain wrong. And we should be able to, to say that and to to confront those who are, are banning these books with that. Um, when they say that you know they're fighting for parents' rights, you don't have the right to take away books from every child in your district. That's simply not a parental right. If you want your child only to have this very narrow, um, you know, very narrow vision of America and this very narrow sense of reading books, I, I feel deeply sad for that child um, but you can also homeschool your kid. Mm. And I don't think any of those parents want to do that. They want uh, they want public schools and public libraries to bend to their will. But public schools and public libraries uh, serve the entire population. And libraries are, you know, libraries are like the lighthouses of democracy. Um, when I was a, a teacher, I taught in Skokie, Illinois, which is a very, very diverse district. I had a huge immigrant population and one young man came in with his library card and he stood up and he said, when we first moved to this country, when we first settled and got our place in Skokie and, you know, refugees don't, they travel a kind of long and winding path. So right. it took a while for them to get their final home. He said, the first thing my mom had us do was she took all of us to the library and had us get a library card. Wow! And she said to us, in this country, you can check out any book you want. You can read any book you want. And just hearing that story, it should be sending like shivers, you know, down Absol- everyone's fine. It's choking that is, me
0: up, Samira. Yeah, it's.
3: It is an incredible story. And I just remember thinking how we don't realize the privileges that we have sometimes in this country. And instead of trying to extend those privileges, we're trying to rip them down. I mean, imagine for this mom who brought her kids and, you know, through as refugees, finally got a place in this country. And she's thinking, you know, she had grown up in the former Soviet Union. I just want to be able to get a library card so we can read whatever we want so that no one can say to me, this is how you must think. And instead, my kids can read all these books and determine how they want to see the world. Their worldview can be established through diverse voices, through experiencing so many things. And that's what I believe we should be giving our kids. We should be giving our kids the world. I mean, what parent doesn't want that?
0: Samira Ahmed is the author of, among other books, Internment. And she is the author of the forthcoming book, This Book Won't Burn. Joining us from Chicago. Samira, thank you.
3: Thank you so much for having me.